You're listening to KZOM, Oleander Public Radio. Recorded by Douglas W. Taylor, Port Townsend, Washington, on Facebook at facebook.com slash Actor. Astounding Stories, 15, March 1931, by Various. The Phalanxes of Atlans, Chapter 10. With sharp anxiety, Victor Nelson kept watching the towers of Jezreel rise ever clearer above the great warm plain of Jarmuth. But for all that, he noted how distinctly Jezreel differed from Heliopolis. The Jarmuthian capital was predominantly amber-yellow instead of white in color. Its towers were flat-topped, angular, hideous structures that compared not at all favorably with the graceful Grecian architecture of Atlantean public buildings. The populace, he decided as he strode along in the midst of a half-dozen silent guards, was as harsh and graceless as their architecture, whereas the Atlanteans had been white-skinned and uniformly red-haired, save for those of Hudsonian blood, the inhabitants of Jarmuth, almost without exception, were black-haired and had dark, olive-hued skins. They're the lost tribes of Israel, all right, Nelson decided, after a brief sojourn in that savage land lying beyond Apidanus, the great boiling river, whose bubbling and scalding currents had for centuries served as a natural boundary between the two realms. But now the Jarmuthian armies had crossed it and were steadily pushing back the demoralized and despairing Atlanteans with savage energy that heaped the dead in hillocks. Their armor, mused the ragged barefoot prisoner, studying his silent guards, Looks a lot like a Roman legionnaire's, but that six-pointed star on their helmets is pure Semitic. Yes, this sure is an Asiatic outfit. His eyes wandered from one fierce, big-nosed infantryman to another and noted the splendid physical structure of the majority. Evidently hardier, much less refined and luxury-loving than the Atlanteans, these swart warriors disdained robes and other garments, Save for helmet, armor, and brief black kilts, they were quite naked. Like the Atlantean hoplites, the infantrymen carried spears, steam retortii, and quantities of grenades. The countryside through which the prisoner passed had a holiday air, for garlands of flowers hung in every doorway, and naked, pot-bellied children squatted by the roadside, industriously weaving crowns and streamers of gay blossoms. "'Look, Atlantean dog!' commanded the black-bearded leader of the escort. Let thine infidel eyes gaze upon the mightiest city of the world. Seest thou yonder ziggurat, which o'ertowers all others? Nelson raised eyes red-rimmed from sleeplessness and deep anxiety, for the crafty Jarmuthians had proved unexpectedly unwilling to credit him as the Atlantean outcast and would-be renegade he had pretended to be. Yes, he said in reply to the English-speaking Jehar's captain's question. What's it for? Tis the temple of the almighty Beelzebub, steam god of Jarmuth. Without his hot breath, no wheel would turn. Our armies would be powerless, and this land would perish under the ice of the outer world. The dark-eyed officer's eye 
fell speculatively upon his bound and dust-covered prisoner. Perchance, dog of a spy, thou wilt die during today's fourth division, together with Altara, pale daughter of the feeble false god Poseidon. This afternoon? Nelson could not realize that the time had flown so quickly. Four short hours separated him from the crisis of his life. A thousand doubts assailed him. What if Alden or Hero Giles failed in their share of the great scheme for rescue? Narrowly, the aviator's eye searched the great rich plain, then swept the amber-hued sky where, far above the plain, Gilboa, the nearest flame sun, beat off the arctic chill and darkness. The great black-bearded Jehar eased the straps from which was suspended the brass coil of his retortii. Aye, he chuckled, his thick lips parted in a crafty smile. Ere long will the fair flesh of Altara grace the ceremonial board of his exaltation the king and his priests and princes. Nelson gasped in horror. The divinely beautiful Altara, butchered for meat like a calf? Grotesque! Ghastly! What? You eat your prisoners? He felt sick, nauseated. For answer, the swart Charmuthian raised an enormous hand and dealt the captive American a stinging cuff, which made his teeth rattle. Peace, he snarled, else I slit thy spying throat ere we pass yonder walls. Fingering a short blue-black beard that was frizzed into tight curls in the Assyrian manner, the Jehar lengthened his stride as the little detachment clanked into the shadow of a great wall surrounding Jezreel, and through a huge gate guarded by two hideous jackal-headed effigies. Hurrying into the city were throngs of eager men, women, and children, interspersed with muscular, black-bearded soldiers who cast threatening, baleful eyes on the pale-skinned prisoner. At first, the great metropolis of Jezreel seemed boundless, for everywhere arose tall, massive monuments of yellow marble, whose facades were engraved with Sanskrit characters, thus bearing out Nelson's surmise that this was indeed a race of Semitic origin. Here and there hurried gray-bearded, vulture-eyed priests, oddly garbed in corrupt Okive and Tyrian regalia. Nelson found it odd to see the Tablet of the Laws, which Jarmuth so openly ignored, swaying on their yellow-robed breasts, and none cried out more menacingly nor more loudly against the limping, wan-faced captive than these same ecclesiastics, who must have long since forgotten all worship of Jehovah in the foul service of a bestial golden effigy. A stone sailed through the air, narrowly missing the American, then another which struck his shoulder. God, what a rough-looking crowd, thought Nelson, as the guards, cursing, held back the screaming mob. At this rate I won't live to even reach the temple. Every second his life stood in great danger. Unkempt, slow-eyed women hurled themselves, shrieking with fury, against the armored chests of the guards, who were hard-pressed to beat them off with their spear-hafts. Nelson's one small ray of comfort in this evil hour 
was the fact that his forty-five pistol remained untouched in a food wallet. At the border, the Jehar had cast one contemptuous glance at the weapon, but, no doubt deeming it some strange culinary tool, he had made no effort to remove it. It was a continual struggle for the guards to win their way up a long flight of stairs, for ever the great stream of humanity grew denser and more menacing. Nelson felt a violent sense of revolt grip his being. I must win free, he thought. If I fail, Alden dies, and... and... For the first time, he realized how much he wanted to actually see Altara. Like a clear cameo, an image of her had remained fresh in his memory. Except for her Grecian garments, she might have been a lovely, carefree English or American girl. And these decadent swine would sacrifice her? The thought was sickening. Yet how could he prevent the pitiful tragedy? Fortunately, a detachment of troops, tall, sinewy fellows with conical helmets crested with six-pointed stars, reinforced the guards just as clawing hands began to snatch and tug at the prisoner's ragged Atlantean chiton of blue cotton. Almost before he realized it, Nelson was dragged inside a great gloomy building and into a circular chamber, where four eagle-featured elders sat in council beneath the six-pointed star of Sem. On approaching, the Jehar in command sank on one knee and, in humble salute, raised both hands to the tribunal. "'A tough-looking desk sergeant they've got,' muttered the prisoner to himself, as his eye met the chilling regard of a lean, yellow-faced priest. "'Wonder what I'm booked for?' idiotically. He recalled being summoned before a traffic court years back. Guess I don't get off with vagrancy. It'll probably be everything from speeding to mayhem, with maybe arson and well poisoning thrown in. The deliberations of this ominous court proved to be appallingly short. The dour-faced elders merely put their heads together, muttered a few sentences, then straightened up almost immediately. The chief priest, he with the yellow face, thrust out his fist and made the immemorial signal of death by jerking his thumb at the black marble floor. Before the outraged and astounded aviator could utter a word of protest, powerful guards seized and hauled him off down a dark, narrow passageway in which the fetid prison smell was very strong. Too wise to struggle against overwhelming odds, Yet appalled at the thought of his impending doom, Nelson was dragged into a room where four or five furtive enslaved Atlanteans, made dumb by the removal of their tongues, were engaged in a curious occupation. On a bare stone bench, five other Atlantean captives were sitting in miserable silence. They made a grotesque array, for their heads were crowned with gay yellow and blue flowers, and the upper half of their perfectly formed bodies gleamed with an application of a sweet-smelling oil. About their wrists and waists were twined fragrant garlands of yellow roses, which hid the leather straps confining their hands. Struggling, Nelson was forced onto the bench, whereupon slaves, skipping to avoid the lash of a scarred, olive-hued slave-driver, hurried to wash the newly-arrived prisoner's limbs, face, and hands. 
a weary-looking old slave with sunken, roomy eyes, listlessly pulled the blue chiton from Nelson's broad shoulders and would have removed the food pouch had not the prisoner winked vigorously. The ministering slave glanced swiftly sideways and, discovering the slave-driver's attention directed to another corner, pulled the upper folds of the chiton over the food pouch and its precious contents, then set a crown of yellow roses, more or less askew, on the American's head. For all the peril of the situation, Nelson could not suppress a fleeting smile as the phrase, "'For I am to be the Queen of the May, Mother,' leapt nonsensically into his brain. "'Yes, I guess they are getting us all dolled up for a sacrifice of some kind.' Nelson's heart began to pound at the thought. Then he fought for self-control. It must be a hideously realistic nightmare. He, Victor Nelson, American citizen, a quiet birdman, member of the Caterpillar Club, and ex-flight commander of the AEF, was about to be offered as a sacrifice to some hideous pagan god? Nonsense. He'd wake up in a minute and hear the drone of a ship on the line. He blinked, staring fixedly at a single ray of light that came streaming in through a small barred window, then glanced sideways at his fellow victims, who, with Spartan indifference, sat waiting for the end of all things. It was no dream. From the tiny window came the shrill, discordant braying of many trumpets and a roar like that of a football crowd, arose surprisingly near. In response, the slave-driver lashed the gaudily bedecked sacrificial victims to their feet with vicious cuts of his pliant whip, and herded them like a drove of calves down a very long passage, lit at intervals by those strange column lamps of incandescent gas. In their red glare, the doomed sick seemed as though already bathed in blood. "'Must be some crowd of people outside,' muttered Nelson, as a great gale of sound deafened him. Yonder the amber glare of the flame suns glimmered, and now it was his turn to step into the open. On a sort of spiral roadway he paused, breathless, awed, bewildered, for there— Eddying restlessly about the bases of towers and other huge structures was a great sea of upturned faces. To his surprise, he found the passage he had followed opened perhaps halfway up what must be the great ziggurat of Beelzebub. He judged the tower's height must be immense, for already the crowd was a good hundred feet below. Zorotoa, Zorotoa, Ubalonka, death to the victims! Nelson shivered. How terrible was the wild, bloodthirsty clamor of that vast throng when they beheld the six flower-decked prisoners appear upon the circular winding road which led to the lofty and wind-swept summit of the great conical pyramid of the people of Jezreel. Behind the victims marched perhaps eighteen or twenty spearmen, gorgeously uniformed in yellow and black painted armor, their retortii were plated with gold, and in the center of a star forming the crest of each helmet was set a diamond large as a hickory nut. Preceding the despairing prisoners marched a squad of tall, clean-shaven priests with great gold hoops in their ears. They blew mightily upon long curved horns, 
and were followed by perhaps a dozen lithe, posturing girls, half-clothed in diaphanous yellow robes. These priestesses swung golden censers which flung bluish clouds of aromatic smoke high into the humid air above. Up and up, around and around the great tower temple, Nelson was dragged, while the vast city of Jezreel, palaces, towers, courts, dwellings, and all, lay like a great panorama below. Up and up, and the wind grew stronger, while Nelson marveled at the great height of the structure he was mounting. Immediately in front of him swayed the naked shoulders of the three captive Atlanteans, he could see rose petals from their crowns fluttering in the strong, warm breeze, sweeping that man-made pinnacle for the worship of a heathen god. Despairingly, the American's eyes searched the horizon to discover nothing but a few great birds wheeling lazily in the bronze-hued sky. Very clearly, he could discern three of the flame suns casting flame high from their peaks. Alden, he groaned. Oh, God, Alden, don't fail me. Chilled by the fate in store, he scanned the dark and hostile faces below, but found no friendly visage. Up and up, the procession was now nearing the summit. There were hosts of poignant problems before him, each vital if Altara and the Empire of Atlans were to be saved, but one primary question immediately confronted him. How could he get his hands free? He ventured a few words in English to the stolid Atlantean at his side, whereat the fellow only stared dully and shook his red, flower-crowned head. He next tried to cautiously work loose his hands, but to no avail. The rope of plated skin binding his aching wrists together was tough as any rawhide. Cursing, he abandoned the effort, and as his eyes once more swept the great bloodthirsty throng below, he felt himself doomed indeed. End of chapter 10 Recording by Douglas W. Taylor Squim, Washington On Facebook at Papa Doug Actor Thank you everyone for being patient for these, these uh, current and upcoming episodes. Uh, had a rash of sickness and uh, family issues currently, and yeah, so uh, I, I now present you with uh, March and early April on People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. We would also like to welcome Gretchen Martin uh, to the cast of People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. She is... Uh, I don't know, I, I, I guess uh, one of our, our, our other horror movie experts in uh, comics uh, and uh, uh, manga and uh, a lot of uh, other stuff. And yeah, no, no. Uh, so welcome, Gretchen, and check us out on People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos at pgttcm, pgttcm.com, at pgttcm.com. Uh, just search any of those. You'll find us eventually. <laughs> We're on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube. Um, 
Instagram. And Gretchen's on Gretchen is Weird, I believe, on Instagram. So check her out. Uh, Dave's Corner of the Universe is Dave's website. Uh, he's not linking anything from us to him, but we link to him. So check out his past articles. Give him some love. Maybe he'll write some more stuff. All right. Thank you, everyone. And... Uh, if you like this show, share it. Let other people know that you like it. Uh, let me know if you like it. Uh, you can contact us at pgttcm at gmail.com. If you S-A-S-E us a envelope, we will send you some stickers or something. And yeah... So, thank you. Contact, uh, message me for uh, uh, address. And uh, we'll talk to you in the future. And uh, keep, keep, keep it weird. Stay squiggly. And, uh, yeah.